0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRose Show. I'm really excited about today's guest. We have Darius Dale. He is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro making his debut on the show. In this episode, we got his macroeconomic outlook and framework and why he sees a recession as the most likely base case and why he sees the likelihood of inflation re accelerating. So, what we're talking about here is a stagflationary environment, which historically has been the worst environment for stocks and bonds. In this episode, Darius uses a lot of charts. These are really helpful visuals. So I highly recommend that you watch the video for this episode. You can watch the video on Spotify. You can also watch the video on YouTube. And I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro, an investment research firm that aims to disrupt the financial services industry by democratizing institutional grade macro risk management processes. It is so great to welcome you to the show. And Darius, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Long time no see, Julia. Thank you for having me. You've been kicking butt, taking names. I'm just glad to be here. Thank you. You
0: are way too kind, and I'm excited to have you on because it's your debut on the show, and you and I talked, probably it was just over a year ago, Um, I was guest hosting at the time, the best business show, and so I'm just thrilled to have you on my show. Darius, where we like to start the show with our guests is to get their big picture, their macro framework their outlook um, on both the markets and the economy. So take all the time that you need to set the table, if you will, on the macro view for you today.
1: So I'm going to show, I'm going to walk you guys through what we call our macro weather model. Um, This is a systematic process that we built here at 42 Macro to help us keep tabs on what we think are the primary drivers of asset markets vis-a-vis what we call the 10 principal components of macro. And so I'll start with the the real economy cycles uh, at the top left here. We have growth, uh, accelerating on a trend basis and it's expected to decelerate over the next 12 months. So we have a little bit of dichotomy there in terms of markets trying to price out, price in or price out that inflection point. Uh, and ultimately we do believe that inflection point, uh, we are near towards that inflection point, uh, kind of heading into the Q4 Q1 timeframe. Uh, in terms of inflation, uh, inflation here in the U.S. economy has has started to reaccelerate on a trend basis. Now that reacceleration is expected to be sort of a, kind of a blip on the radar in the broader trend of disinflation uh, but we happen to do we happen to believe that is going to have a market impact uh, in terms of employment the the labor cycle uh, we have the unemployment rate now trending higher uh, and it's expected to continue trending higher uh, over the next 12 months if you look at um, you know the amalgamation of, of, of Wall Street economist consensus forecast uh, when you look at uh, Wall Street analyst forecast for for sales and earnings growth uh, for something like the S&P sales growth is uh, the, that growth rate is trending lower uh, It's pretty muted And the earnings growth rate is actually starting to trend higher now. This is a new phenomenon uh, as as we start to pull in deeper into 2024 uh, earnings estimates. Uh, When you look at fiscal policy, this has been one of the biggest drivers uh, of the economy. And and as a function of that, financial markets this year, um, this sort of um, kind of record non-war, non-recession budget deficit that we've experienced uh, here in the U.S. economy uh, that continues to widen that budget deficit on a trending basis. Uh, and, And despite that, we're seeing a dollar strength, which is telling you that everything you need to know about the kind of relative monetary policy stance between the fed uh and the and the rest of the world when you transition to the financial economy cycles we'll start with liquidity um, you know one of the things i'm somewhat famous for is creating the uh the 42 macro net liquidity model uh, that's the fed balance sheet minus uh, the treasury general account balance minus the reversible facility balance uh, that number is actually trending higher now um it's, it's trending higher now is primarily through uh, a decline in the reverse repo facility because Yellen is doing a great job of of, of sort of targeting uh, the short end of the Treasury curve with uh, with financing the U.S. government uh, in terms of the global liquidity proxy. That forty two macro global liquidity proxy is the sum of the global central bank balance sheet, uh, global raw money supply, and global FX reserves uh, minus gold. That number is trending lower. It's continued to trend lower. Uh, it inflected lower kind of around the springtime uh, after a pretty really big surge from Q four uh, through Q one uh, in terms of credit credit growth continues to trend lower both domestically and abroad uh, these are zero percentile readings in terms of broad money supply for both the us and global economy uh, so that's something to call out as uh, as something that's a, a harbinger for maybe tougher times ahead uh, in the economy but not quite yet because again this has been an income driven business cycle and again everything i'm saying by the way you should be taking notes uh, not you julie but the the listener because we can obviously unpack uh, any of this uh, later in the presentation uh, in terms of interest rates, those are obviously trending higher. We're starting to get towards the end of the policy tightening cycle. Maybe there's one more rate hike in November or December based on how the data is likely to evolve over the next few weeks and months. And then lastly, when we track positioning uh, through the lens of aggregated U.S. dollar positioning. So uh, this is uh, the total non-commercial net length of all, the, um, of all the major currencies plus gold against the U.S. dollar. Uh, the U.S. dollar is now an extreme bullish position relative to its trailing, uh, trailing uh, time series. Uh, U.S. rates, so amalgamating U.S. non-commercial net length across the entire treasury curve. um, That's an extreme bearish reading. And we also have an extreme bearish reading in in the commodity space in terms of all the uh, non-commercial net length across all the different uh, components of the CRB index. And then lastly, with U.S. equities, uh, non-commercial net length divided by total open interest for all the equity um, 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 instruments that the CFTC keeps track of, that's currently in a neutral signal. So there's two key uh, takeaways from this table in terms of this current constellation of the 10 principal components of macro one each of these uh, principal components and each of these um you know component signals contributes independently to each asset class in terms of projecting excess return dispersion on a three month four basis and right now the the model is saying stock market you should expect below normal returns for the stock market over the next 3 months below normal returns for the bond market over the next 3 months above normal returns for the US dollar over the next 3 months below normal returns for commodities and below normal returns for bitcoin and so that's um that's kind of the, the key the, the that's kind of your starting point for thinking about taking risk in financial markets about you know thinking about dynamic position sizing volatility targeting you have to you know incorporate all these different macro uh signals into your your views on, on on a bayesian basis with respect to the asset classes so uh, that's kind of where we are obviously when you see a lot of red lights on the page that's telling you that cash is king uh and certainly um you certainly not you're certainly being rewarded uh, for not taking an undue amount of risk uh, obviously at the short end of the treasury curve short end investment grade commercial paper space.
0: That is fascinating. And I love they brought charts to this conversation. So as you put it, cash is king right now. So um, just to kind of, you know, flesh this out a bit, are you in the camp? Now, this conversation comes up a lot on the show. Are you in the camp that we're going to get a recession? Some folks are thinking like, some folks are still thinking soft landing is on the table. Others think hard landing. Where do you kind of stand? What are those signals kind of um, flashing for you?
1: Yeah, great question. So, uh, yes, we've been in that camp. Uh, if you go back to uh, the summer of last year, we altered the view that the US economy was and is likely to remain resilient until we got into Q4 of 2023, Q4, Q1 of 2024, when we performed our uh, uh, back testing with respect to uh, yield curve inversions, particularly on the three month, 10 year Treasury yield curve. We found that the 13 to 18 month forward interval uh, in terms of the six month interval that has has the highest probability of seeing a real GDP contraction and a rise in the unemployment rate historically. And so 13 to 18 months forward from the date of inversion in this particular cycle, which was late October of 2022, puts you in Q4 of 2023 to Q1 of 2024 as the highest probability of seeing a recession process start. And so we are very much I uh, have our antenna uh, raised in the sense of okay, we know we're transitioning from this long-held, resilient U.S. economy theme, this theme that has caused a lot of pain for investors this year, both in terms of squeezing bears uh, to the heavens, high heavens in the stock market, but also blowing up bond bulls in the bond market. Now we're effectively saying, hey, I think our resilient U.S. economy theme is getting long in the tooth. And so we're very much um, um, have our uh, radar up for looking for signs of economic deterioration in the U.S. economy, because this is kind of the early part of when that deterioration should start. You know, it could start, you know, as as as, as you know, far away as, as in March or April, uh, but this is kind of the earliest uh, in the, uh, earliest window of time that we think we could start to see some real material de- deterioration.
0: Yeah, and speaking of that deterioration, where do you, where does one typically start to see that transpire? Where does when you start to really see that unfold that you get more concerned about it? Just want to hear more on that part of the equation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll share. Uh, so this presentation I'm going through right now. This is our monthly macro scouting report. We put this out at the beginning of every month to our to 42 macro clients to help them kind of get a, a broader sense of, hey, what are the highest probability outcomes from a modal outcome perspective, both in the economy and financial markets. And then we also spend a tremendous amount of time and resources on helping them understand both the right and left tail every month. And because ultimately markets change, the regime in the markets changes. You know, asset markets trend; they stop trending. We have to understand what will cause you know some of these big inflection points uh, in and across asset markets. And so. We always do constantly, you know, helping investors understand that full distribution of probable economic and market outcomes, and so this is, you know, probably a, the the flagship, you know, tool that we use to help uh, communicate with investors. Uh, to answer your question specifically, Julia, on you know what would we expect to see uh, in this, you know, kind of, um, you know, what are what are the things we're looking for to give us an indication of a, of a broader breakdown uh, in the business cycle, and and we start with our a uh, whole plus I framework, and so what I'm showing in this chart, it's a it's from one of a mouthful. Uh, It means something if you're a quantitatively oriented thinker, but uh, for those of you who aren't, I'll I'll explain it once I say this. But So what I'm showing in this particular chart, each of these lines represents the median trailing 10-year delta adjusted z-score of a basket of select indicators in months before and after recession starts. So this is the zero line. So effectively minus two means minus two months before recession start, plus two equals plus two months after the recession started. And so what each of these lines represents is the delta adjusted z-score so adjusted for the directionality i.e down is bad good is up think about adjusting unemployment rate or jobless claims, so that that, that makes a little bit more sense uh, and what we're trying to do is understand when does the the, the sort of basket of indicators that we've hand selected handpicked to represent each of these cycles breaks down broadly on a on a trend basis you know sustainably below trend prior to recession and so what we find is that housing the housing oriented indicators Breaks down sustainably below trend, roughly sixteen to eighteen months ahead of a recession on balance. And there's about you know five to eight to twelve uh, indicators in each of these in each of these cycles in terms of the the, the time series. Uh, in terms of orders, you know thing, you know the order cycle tends to break down eight to ten months uh, ahead of a recession. Uh, you know typically production and profits. So kind of like you know more coincident, you know the more coincident type uh, indicators of the business cycle, industrial production, et etc. Corporate profits; those things tend to break down uh, sustainably around four to six months ahead of a recession. And then, lastly, employment—we uh, tend to see, uh, which is more of a lagging indicator of the business cycle—that uh, tends to break down right on time, like right when the recession uh, historically, or right when the session kind of hits. And then, lastly, inflation tends to be this this very big lagging indicator, only breaking down about six to eight months after recession. And so, kind of um, in terms of like how to think about this, just structurally, not just respect to this business cycle, but broadly you always want to be looking for evidence of this sort of progression and we are getting evidence of this progression we obviously know housing uh, most of the housing data has broken down below trend uh, we've seen orders data break, break down below trend in terms of pmis lagging some of the uh, other uh, business um business uh, uh, survey type indicators have, have broken down as well production and profits we've we had this uh, pretty nasty decline in industrial production corporate profits etc obviously we had an earnings recession if you look at s&p type companies that stuff's all broken down but what we have not seen is a is a is a role kind of breaking down in the labor cycle. We've not seen uh, you know job growth really go uh, break down sustainably below trend. We've not seen wage growth. We've not seen hours worked growth break down sustainably below trend. So uh, this is an economy that is late cycle based on the progression of, of these indicators, but it is not yet you know recessionary. And so it's our job as investors to to kind of think about uh, putting together some a, a collection of tools that will allow us to kind of you know be very early. In the process of identifying whether or not the employment cycle is starting to get recessionary,
0: yeah. And then when you mention um, inflation uh, in that breaking down, like naive question here, is that when is that inflation coming down or going higher? Like, what is what do you what do you mean by when it breaks down?
1: Yeah, so it breaks down below trend, sustainably below trend. So uh, the the, the on, on this chart here, we're showing a, a score, and so zero equals the the mean of the time series for this particular uh, for this particular uh, duration. And so when do we break down below the trailing 10 year mean on a, on a median basis across this, you know, the basket of indicators that represents inflation, you know, headline CPI, core CPI, headline PCE, core PCE, wage inflation, you know, PPI, et cetera. There's you know, a basket of indicators that represents that particular cycle in the economy. And on a median basis, we are not below trend in this, in those indicators in terms of the, on a median basis of the indicators in the basket until we are a couple of quarters into recession, if not two to three quarters into recession. And so it's our view we've had this view for a while and we're actually starting to see it play out uh, in the data that inflation was going to bottom at a level that is inconsistent with the Fed's 2% mandate and ultimately what's may even start to reaccelerate from there we actually are observing some reacceleration and we actually do need to see the US economy go into a recession to actually get rid of the um the above trend inflation uh, that we currently are still dealing with
0: Got it. Okay, so on the inflation side of things um this notion that you'll see at bottom that will be inconsistent with what the Fed wants, and a, seeing a re-acceleration. My question for you is: But this whole notion of getting back to a two percent target—that doesn't—is that does that even seem likely or reasonable? Or maybe we need to rethink our expectations for that.
1: No, we we do need to rethink our expectations for that. Great question, Julia. Uh, so yes, the, uh, there's a couple things that I'll answer that. Yes, we do need to rethink our expectations. We put together a, a model uh, at the beginning of last year that we were presenting uh, across global Wall Street. Um, that sort of uh, kind of made, helped tr- tried to help investors understand that the inflationary impulse that we were experiencing in the economy was part transitory. There are transitory elements in the inflationary impulse, but there are also structural factors that are likely driving up the underlying trend of the time series. Uh, in fact, um, you know, I can share our. A cycle inflation model kind of give you a sense of what that looks like i love I inter- it yes
0: keep sharing yeah these these charts are great
1: no i appreciate it absolutely so but just as a reminder we, we put this uh put, put a deck out like this every at the beginning of every month uh you know i typically go through it in about you know kind of 60 75 minutes um you know with a webcast kind of just doodling on the charts and trying to help investors understand because you know we do one thing we understand at 42 macro my you know i cut my teeth my background is in uh, institutional finance you know flying around the world meeting with you know hedge fund pension funds insurance funds etc trying to help them understand some of these complicated macro dynamics i'm also now doing that for the retail audience as well so you obviously don't need to be uh, i've had to get better at kind of explaining this to the folks who probably don't have the same uh, background in institutional finance and so um, you know the charts certainly help when i'm presenting so i appreciate you uh, appreciating that um so uh this right here is our secular inflation model as i mentioned we put this out uh, at the beginning of last week and the conclusion of the analysis back then and, and continues to be to this day is that inflation? The underlying trend of core PC inflation is likely to trend about fifty to hundred percent higher throughout this decade relative to the prior decade. Now that's kind of a newsly headline. I'm, I'm doing that on purpose to get people to sit up in their chair and pay attention. But the reality is, you know, what we're talking about is going from an underlying trend of core PC inflation in the prior decade of one point six percent to something that looks closer to two point five uh, to three point one percent. And when I say underlying trend, we're just talking about the the, the, the horizontal line. That this the time series is oscillating around over time, right? Like, what's the what's the trend of the time series? And we're effectively saying is that arrow is pointed up, you know. So we were now we're kind of you know you know we're effectively trying to find a new trend level that's closer to two point five to 3, 3.1%, at least according to uh, some of the the movement that we've observed uh, in in some of the features in the in the model. You know, each of these features is handpicked, you know, based on my analysis and study, you know, white papers of things like that that help us understand what is historically driven inflation. You know, kind of the the dirty little secret on Wall Street is that no one really knows what drives and controls inflation. We know if you double the money supply, you're probably gonna get a lot of inflation. We know if you have a big spike in crude oil, you're probably gonna get a lot of inflation. You know, things like that, pretty obvious stuff like that. But like when you actually try to put, you know, the math, the some screws to the math and try to actually say, okay, how much doubling of the money size supply creates X amount of inflation or how much energy inflation creates X amount of inflation over time or how does the wage component filter into inflation with specificity? That stuff's really hard to do. Um, I've certainly spent my career trying to build models like that, and I think this is the best uh, iteration of, 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 of you know, all the models that I've tried to build, you know, trying to answer this question. And the reality is a lot of the, you know, the movement that we're seeing in some of these indicators, whether it be fiscal policy. Or deglobalization, or you know the, the shock that we've seen, the positive shock we've seen to wages, the positive shock we've seen, you know, to wealth effect or consumers, um, you know, consumers, um, you know, uh, you know, cash, the cash that's floating around the economy, all that stuff suggests we're talk- we're somewhere between two and a half to three point one percent on core PC inflation trend. So that doesn't sound like a lot. Like who cares? You know, like is a what ninety nine percent of people would probably say. But the reality is the Fed cares. It's because they have a two percent inflation target. If we're talking about inflation trending, trending at a level that's close to 2.5 or maybe 3.1 percent on the high end of that estimate range, and this is without a, a major shock to commodity prices right now, we could easily see the, that 2.5 to 3.1 percent range kind of slide higher if we did see a sustained uh, of, about of commodity price inflation, which you know we have tension in the Middle East. Uh, historically that has been the outcome of tension in the Middle East. Um, you know, we could easily see those numbers uh, gravitate higher and really put the Fed in a bind. From the perspective of, uh, of its reaction function, long term, in our opinion, we think the Fed is headed for a implicit or explicit revision to its two percent inflation target. They sort of already, you know, implicitly revised it back in the fall of 2020 when they moved to the um, the, the average inflation targeting. They don't say it out loud anymore, but we know it's still there. And ultimately, they're going to have to move away uh, even further away from two percent with something that looks like you know more than average inflation targeting, i.e., an explicit. You know, call for two two point five percent, which will allow them the average inflation target at three uh, in, in subsequent years, and so we we definitely think it's coming because it's the only way that you're going to be able to allow the Fed uh, to flex its balance sheet to respond to the the growth in the federal budget and the federal budget deficits and debt that we are going to experience in the next couple next next decade plus.
0: Hey everyone, uh, thank you for listening and watching the show. I do want to share something with you all, and if you've been here since earlier this year, you've probably noticed that this channel and the content that we're putting out has improved. And I'm not talking about the interviews, I'm talking about the quality of the production. And I have one person to thank for that, and that is my wonderful producer, Matt Marlinski, who is the founder of Marlinsky Media. So if you're someone like myself and you wanna get started in podcasting, or maybe you already have a show and you want to level up the production, you have to work with Matt. Not only is he a super talented producer, he is a wonderful person and there's no one I would rather build this show with than him. And he's also great when it comes to producing content. So if you already have content, he can help you create more short form to grow your audience. So definitely go check out Marlinsky Media. Okay, back to the interview. Derry, speaking of the Fed, what is your outlook there? What are you most paying attention to? And forgive me if you mentioned it earlier, but are you expecting another hike or cuts anytime in the future or near future?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So I'll, I'll kind of unpack that in reverse or because answer the question on the hike. Uh, it really depends on how the data evolves in the next couple of weeks we get um, uh, if you look to next Thursday, we have Q3 GDP uh, on the 26th, on the 27th, we have, uh, the, the September PCE report on the uh, Tuesday, the 31st, we have the employment cost index as well as the bank of Japan meeting. So there's a lot of stuff going on between now and November 1st, the November 1st Fed meeting that could really sway and change their mind. Not the least of which is the joltz data on the, on the, on the, first uh, of the month. So I think, you know, I, I do believe that there is upside risk to the current 10% pricing in the, of, of the November meeting. I think that number could go easily to 50-50. And, and then we currently have like a two thirds probability of hiking by December. If that number for November goes to 50-50, we're probably going to go to a hundred percent chance uh, by December, just based on how that some of the data are unfolding. And in terms of, um, you know, I, I think it's very important to kind of unpack some of these uh, cyclical inflation dynamics as well, because I, I think it's pretty, you know, I, I don't want to say pretty clear, but at least um, according to, you know, the bond market, at the bare minimum, uh, you know, in terms of finally getting on board with uh, some of these views we've had on inflation and growth for quite a while, you know, I think the cyclical inflation dynamic is really important to understand where the bond market is headed, um, particularly because what we found is that over the last kind of like six months or so, the 10-year treasury yield, both nominal and real, have really traded in lockstep without year estimates of where the Fed fund's policy rate is, right? Actually, before we even get into understanding inflation, let's th- let's talk about that. So right now, if you look at um, if you look at the current year uh, dot plot relative to the fifth December twenty twenty three Fed fund rate future uh, uh, yield or Fed funds rate uh, yield in terms of Fed fund futures pricing, you know that number is right around five point four. So we have some room higher to go for the current year, but we've seen a massive repricing in out year estimates. You know we're now at four point seven nine percent for December twenty twenty four. We're at four point three two percent for these twenty twenty five. And we're at 4.3 percent for D's 2026. So there's an opportunity, in my opinion, in the bond market when we do start to see the economy slow down pretty materially, because ultimately those D's 25 and D's 26 uh, yields are going to probably decline, you know, 75 to 125, 150 basis points, just to get uh, in line with where Fed historical rate cutting cycles are. So, but but between now and then, I do believe we have to deal with uh, something that um, you know I think it's going to be headline news in a few months. It's starting to become headline news for folks who are paying attention like like us at 42 Macro, but I think it'll become headline news in a few months for folks who are going to have to um, respond to this in their portfolios on a lag, uh, which is we're starting to see evidence of a reacceleration in inflation, a broad-based reacceleration in inflation, and it's coming from levels that are already historically inconsistent with 2%. Like We are now reaccelerating from the prior trend, not the prior trough. And that's very, very scary from a, from a, from a quantitative model building standpoint because it ultimately is confirming everything we just talked about about our secular inflation model, suggesting that the trend has gravitated higher uh, in recent years. So I'll just fly through some of these uh, statistics. Um, you know, when you look at these charts, um, just these blue bars uh, indicate the three-month annualized rates of change for the particular time series that's here on the left? Uh, the red line indicates the year-over-year change. That's what most people pay attention to. Uh, we focus on the three-month annualized rates of change because they lead the year-over-year rate of change, which is what everyone else is paying attention to. Uh, and then the light dotted blue lines in these charts indicate the 2015 to 2019 trend to give you a sense of like you know where the where the time series trended prior to COVID. And so we are now the second consecutive month of acceleration in headline CPI to 4.8 percent on a three-month annualized basis, well north of the pre-COVID trend. We are now in the uh, the fourth consecutive month of reacceleration uh, in, in, foods, in in food CPI to through 2.9 percent well north of the pre-COVID trend. We are now in the second, uh, third consecutive month of acceleration in uh, energy uh, CPI. We're now at 29.3%. Obviously that number's well north of the pre-COVID trend. Uh, when you get into it, we're at the first consecutive month and we only have data through August. Now we're gonna get the September PCE report on, uh, on uh, the next Friday on the 27th, but we are now re-accelerating in headline PCE to 3.1%. Uh, that's well north of the pre-COVID trend, the light dotted blue line there. Core inflation is the same dynamic. Headline, or sorry, core inflation, now we're accelerating to 3.1%. Again, I'm saying three and four and five, and all these numbers that are very not two, right? (laughs) So like, pay attention to to some of these numbers that I'm saying. Uh, Core services inflation popped up to 5.3% through methanalized housing inflation. If you look at shelter CPI, popped up to 5.5% through methanalized super core CPI. So this is core services, uh, CPI X housing. That's three consecutive months of acceleration to 4.7% through month annualized, more than double the pre COVID trend. And then you look at um, some of these measures of underlying inflation as well, uh, whether it be median CPI uh, reaccelerating to 3.9% through month annualized, trend mean CPI double, accelerating for the second consecutive month uh, to 3.6% through month annualized. All these numbers effectively bottomed at their pre COVID trend not the prior trough of the, that created the trend, but the trend itself, which means, again, the underlying uh, uh, momentum in the time series is gravitating higher. And so if we continue down this path of just not even accelerating, but just staying stagnant at levels that are well north of you know anything that would be consistent with 2% inflation, then we're talking about a Federal Reserve that it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not they continue hiking interest rates. To me, the forward guidance on, hey, we're not cutting as far as the eye can see, taking up the dot plot like they did in the most recent meeting in terms of uh, the 50 basis point rate hike we saw to the to 2024 and 2025 dot plots. They're going to continue to do more things like that, that can push this higher for longer pricing in the fixed income market uh, throughout the bond market and you know, through the lens of, of, of higher term premium, et cetera. In our opinion, that's definitely not something that uh, investors are going to appreciate as, as, as market participants.
0: Yeah. And then like a follow on to that is with this higher for longer the longer side of things like the duration of just how long and what are the consequences of that
1: yeah so this is uh something that you know i think we you know it's been a it's been a challenging year to communicate to the retail investor because there's so many moving parts and unless you're constantly paying attention to all these moving parts as we do as professional investors you know you're sort of easy to kind of check out and go and come back and go oh that's different you know <laughs> and so one of the things that i think folks are going to say oh that's different which is We've kind of gravitated to not we because I think we've been there for a while prior to Wall Street getting there, but Wall Street has kind of gravitated towards a very high probability of experiencing a non-recession in the U.S. economy, like a no landing or you know just just not a hard landing. Anything that's not a hard landing, however, else you want to characterize it, I'll let folks do that on their own time. But just avoiding a recession seems to be a much higher probability based on survey data, based on that market pricing, et cetera, uh, than it was you know six nine months ago, you know ten months ago at the beginning of the year. Uh, so that's changed and so what could really shock that you know interpretation is if you are in that camp i.e., there won't be a recession or you know you're in the adjacent camp which is there'll be something that looks like a very mild recession to me that's very dangerous because what i'm effectively arguing is that the inflation data are going to make the fed very late to respond with monetary easing in this particular business cycle uh, and that's has historically been the case in in inflationary uh business cycles the Fed, you know, we know that monetary policy works with long and variable lags, and so if we begin a recessionary process with measures of underlying core headline, pick any uh, you know cohort of inflation information, if we begin the recessionary process with those measures tracking one, two, three hundred basis points north of levels that are consistent with the Fed's two percent inflation target, it means the Fed's going to be forced to sit on its hands and watch the economy slow and not do anything about it and to me that's what uh, ultimately makes this process a lot worse when you when it's all said and done is because asset markets are going to force they're going to be the conduit to force the fed off of its indecision and its non-response to the economic slowdown the pending economic slowdown which we still think is the modal outcome and if that's the case we're going to have a worse recession than people are currently anticipating markets are going to go down way more in terms of the risk asset response to this than people are anticipating than the average investor is anticipating because it ultimately means we're not going to get what we're so used to, particularly for the last 10, 15 years of Fed policy response, which is every sniffle in the market, the Fed's there with the, you know, the fire hose trying to put out the fire. Well, this is a Fed that's going to be smoking pot uh, behind the, the grocery store, you know, instead of, you know, sitting in the fire truck. <laughs> and they're going to be late. <laughs> and late equals more pain economically, more pain in the markets. And I think that's the 2024 story.
0: So you don't see you don't see a scenario where they like step in no no more qe none of that
1: they so that's a that's a loaded question and and, and i'll answer that both cyclically and structurally okay they are they're not going to be able to do the kinds of quantitative easing large scale of purchase programs that they that we're so accustomed to in the context of our our secular inflation model discussion we, we had prior until they acknowledge that inflation's higher and then they can you know start responding to it again if they're constantly fighting to get inflation back down to two percent, it just takes them out of the game. It takes them out of the game permanently, and we don't think that's a politically palatable outcome. We do. We believe the Fed will be, you know, required to help finance what we we see as burgeoning uh, sovereign debts and deficits. Uh, we did a, a big study. You've had Neil Howell, my former colleague, uh, on your program. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah, episode ninety three.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was awesome, man. I, I, I definitely checked it out. Um, so, you know, one of the, you know, Neil is obviously famous uh, for the forward turning framework and what that means from a geopolitical standpoint, not just domestically, but globally. And I think one of the things that, you know, in the next few years, I think we're going to be famous at 42 Macro for is actually adding the empirical analysis to Neil's forward turning framework. And one of the key takeaways from our our, our deep dive study on unempirical, uh, on, on what actually happens in the economy and financial markets during forward turnings, one of the big takeaways is that you typically see very large and, and and spiking budget deficits uh, in these four turning events, and as a function of that, you typically see sovereign debt, you know, spikes dramatically. You know, we have these big step functions higher in for in sovereign debt during these four turnings, and as a function of that, the understanding that that's the likelihood, that's the highest probability outcome from the perspective of the the data, we know that we're probably going to see more public debt growth than what's currently baked into you know CBO projections. IMF projections, you know, whoever's making projections for the uh for the for the, for the growth of the uh, federal budget deficit and and debts, we think those you got to take the over on those statistics and you know probably hammer the over on those statistics uh in the context of some of the work that we've done. I highly recommend folks check that out. Uh and and so in that context, we think the Fed will be forced politically to actually come to the rescue because this will be occurring at a time with great, you know, kind of geopolitical tension. And, and and splintering apart from, a, from, an, uh, so from an economic cooperation standpoint. You're not going to have the, the, the foreign official sector, you know, capitalizing the treasury market like it used to, you know, go back to 2008. Foreign official sector was about 30% of the marketable treasury demand. Right now it's, all, it's down to about 16% of marketable treasury demand. You know, we're about uh, only 16% of marketable treasury demand uh, in terms of the commercial bank, U.S. commercial banking sector. That number was as high as 30% uh, in, in recent decades. So we definitely think that you're going to experience financial repression and monetary debasement vis-a-vis large-scale asset purchases to respond to this kind of you know, lurching forward of, of US uh, public debt and deficits. But ultimately, they are not good. The Fed won't be able to do that until they are forced by the data and the political winds of the economy to respond to this. And so here's how I think it's going to play out. The Fed can't pivot to a 3%, two and a half, three 3% inflation target right now you know, the economy is, you know, I wouldn't say booming, but it's certainly showing a lot of resiliency that a lot of folks miss uh, this year. They will be able to do that if the political discussion in DC and across America becomes, well, why is the Fed trying to drive up unemployment? You know, we're already at, let's call it, let's pick a number, 5% unemployment. Why does the Fed want seven or eight? Why can't we just be comfortable with five and allow, and have the Fed change its inflation target? That will be a narrative that we're going to be watching on, you know, on 60 minutes and face the nation at some future, you know, political cycle, because ultimately that's what's going to be required in this fourth turning to actually get us to to the other side. And so uh, we do have a view that that we will see a lot of large scale asset purchases, QE, et cetera. But in this particular cycle, no, the Fed will be late and they will make the cycle a lot worse. And I think a lot of investors are anticipating.
0: Mm, just fascinating. Um I actually my my guest referred to my guest yesterday referred to the fourth turning. I had David Hay on. And um, I think he said, and I don't want to get him wrong, but I think he said, you know, if in the event of like if we had QE, like he's like Powell would resign or something. Like he doesn't, I guess he doesn't see Powell doing the QE. Um,
1: yeah, no, I mean, I could easily. I mean, th- th- this will probably require um, someone who's younger and a little bit less concerned about their, um, you know, their legacy, right? Like Powell's Powell wakes up and he goes to bed and wakes up thinking about inflation. I guarantee you, you know, he's he's the he's the he's the left tackle that just got beat for a sack on third down, and for the next t- 10, 15 minutes until he's back on the field, it's all he can think about, right? That's just the nature of, of, of you know, competing at a high level in any in any arena. And so I it's, I think it's very personal to him to get this inflation genie back in the bottle. So, so personal to him that it's almost guaranteed that, that they were going to have a very lagged monetary easing response in this business cycle to ultimately uh, the likely economic downturn that we see. Uh, is the highest probability still, I'll be that distribution is still relatively flat. You know, if the modal outcome is, I don't know, f- you know, if we have a 50 percent chance of a recession, I'd say there's probably a, a 30, 40% chance of a of a soft landing or no landing or whatever you want to call it. It's not like a 90% chance of a recession and 10% chance of a soft landing, like many economist models were incorrectly predicting at the beginning of the year, we are trying to push back on on the, on all that recession view. It's just they were just a year too early in our. Yeah,
0: because th- I think that today, as we're recording, is like the one year anniversary of the article of like a 100% probability within the next year of a recession. What's
1: stupid model, by the way, Julia. I'd grow models for a living. I've never seen a model even get close to to that high of a number. So clearly, that was a news headline that that a lot of folks made yeah, a, lot, it was a, a lot of money as a function of
0: there you go um I, let me ask you one final question just because it's interesting to me like having this conversation about the fourth turning which is the crisis time before we get to the springtime like the four secular the kind of seasons if you will like like they last about 20 years like basically a lifetime and i'm of the millennial generation i think you are too right you're millennial yeah right? i'm an older so millennial we're the, we're the like, hero what? we're the hero generation on all of this i guess we're supposed to lead the way out of the crisis but when you look at the empirical data like where within the fourth turning do you think we are? And do you think it gets, I mean, obviously, I think it does get worse based on what you're saying, but like there.
1: Yeah, so it's funny. Both Neil and I think we're halfway for different reasons. He thinks we're halfway just based on his interpretation of the political cycle and some of the things we're seeing unfold in D.C., like the, you know, I don't want to say destruction of the Republican Party, but certainly disintegration of the Republican Party. It's very par for the course, by the way. In um, four turnings, we typically see large scale political realignment. You know, you know, going back to the previous four turning, you know, we had basically the first time we saw uh, African-Americans vote for Republicans, um, you know, or sorry, vote for Democrats prior to it was the first time we had ever seen that prior to that. The Whig Party went, you know, by the wayside, which is one of the two main uh, parties. So we we typically see this large scale political realignment. And based on where we are in that process, Neil would argue, hey, and other reasons, obviously, Neil is looking at a lot more things than that. um, He would say you were probably halfway, you know, maybe there's another 10 to 12 ish years uh, in this process. You know, 12, you know, he would say somewhere in that. It, obviously, you can't be specific about these things because ultimately they're going to culminate with some big major geopolitical event, and so we can't try to pretend like we can guess it or time it. Uh, I would say we're probably halfway there as well, just based on the progression of some of the indicators, right? We know that inflation tends to be much higher on a, during four turnings than non-four turnings, first, second, and third turnings, and we also know that inflation tends to spike both early in the – or sorry, both like kind of early in the process and late in the process. And so we're now kind of experiencing that first shock of inflation higher which suggests we're probably going to have another shock of inflation higher at some point later in this four turning process so i'd still say you know based on some of our empirical analysis and that's just one of the you know many things we study we studied about 30 different economic indicators and financial market indicators to give a sense of hey what is the baseline inside and outside of four turnings how does the indicator you know evolve during the four turning and based on that analysis i would say we're probably halfway as well
0: yeah well darius i have to say this has been an absolute pleasure having you on and i love when you go through the charts and it's just an absolute treat i want to give you a few moments let folks know where they can follow you on social media learn more about 42 macro i know you do institutional i also heard you say retail as well so plug away there and any parting thoughts for the folks who are watching and listening
1: yeah so um i'll start by saying uh definitely come check us out we're 42 macro.com uh, we just uh, did our website so I think it's got a lot more sort of educational. It's a little bit more friendly for the retail investor to come learn and, and check out what it is that we do and how they can actually you know, improve their own financial uh, market outcomes. Uh, so that, that's 42Mapper.com. I'm at, on Twitter uh, at DariusDale42. Uh, definitely uh, continue to, you know, I think we try to do our best job of supplementing the the community that we're building um, with the, all that educational information. Um, you know, we tend not to spend too much time focused on, you know, um, you know research and risk management outside of our paywall because that's what our clients pay us for but I do believe that there's a lot of the value we can add just in terms of helping get people up to speed and up that very steep learning curve, which, which, you know, institutional finance, which in our opinion, based on how smart the markets have gotten in recent years and how sophisticated retail investors have gotten in sophisticated years, you need to come up that curve if you wanna do this well consistently across time. And so I think 42 Macro, we built that to help a lot of, you know, thousands of investors do that at a high level. Uh, secondarily, just just taking a step back from these kinds of conversations and everything, I think it's very important that investors don't listen to, like, just don't listen to podcast person, or you know, don't listen to me, the talking head on one of these podcasts, and do something about it in your portfolio, unless you know why you're about to do it, unless you know your sizing, your risk management, your limitations, and these are all things we help investors with uh, in terms of uh, 42 macro. We help investors, you know, we manage a systematic portfolio construction process, and they were constantly spitting out insights from that process. To help all of our different you know styles of investors and, and communities of investors kind of do do a good job because at the end of the day all this stuff doesn't really matter if you don't know how to trade it you can't risk management appropriately you don't have the staying power to be in the trade long enough and these are all things that I think is very j- as much as the sexy fourth turning and inflation and growth all that stuff we that stuffs sexy to talk about I think it's just as important if not more important, to talk about the risk management aspects of making and saving money in financial markets, and I think that's something we specialize in and do a really, really good job of.
0: I love it. Well, Darius Dale, founder and CEO of Forty Two Macro. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. And great to see as always, Darius. Thanks again.
1: Thank you for having me. And and, and keep kicking butt and taking names. It's great to see you know the, the people of color, females, you know, represented in this industry. You know, I've, I've flown around the world, done a lot of meetings, and. I'm usually one of the only black dudes in the room. Well, uh, there's usually not too many chicks in the room either. So I'm, I'm proud of what you're doing and I keep both the great work.
0: Likewise, love it. Thanks again, Darius. Really appreciate you.